Chapter 29 of Up the River by Oliver Optic Up the River for Many Days This is a LibriVox recording. Colonel Hungerford was even more vexed at the failure of the plan to arrest the fugitives than I was. But Baton Rouge was on the last of the bluffs that one sees in descending the great river, and above the region of continuous levees. There was no doubt we could operate from this region and secure the capture of the fugitives. How long since the Queen left? asked the governor of the man who had given us the information. She must have gone nearly three hours, he replied. The fugitives are not likely to leave the steamer before she gets to Vicksburg, for there is no railroad from any point this side of that city. It is thirty-five miles from here to Bayou Sarah. The steamer may stop there and may not, said the governor, musing. That is the last place in this state at which she is at all likely to make a landing. I will telegraph at once. Without waiting to see any of our passengers ashore, I went with the governor to the telegraph office. He sent the dispatch to an official directing him to board the steamer if she did not stop and arrest the fugitives, a sufficient description of whom I gave him. When this was done, Colonel Hungerford had time to attend to the landing of the party. He insisted that all the passengers should go to his residence and stay over Sunday with him. Colonel Shepard declined and declared that he and his family had no claims upon his hospitality. A good-natured controversy ensued and ended in the Colonel and all the others yielding the point. Three carriages started for the residence of the chief magistrate, and another was waiting his orders at the levee. By this time a reply came from the official in Bayou Sarah, in which he promised to follow the instructions of the governor as soon as the steamer came in sight, for she had not yet appeared. Now, Captain Alec, if you will get into this carriage, I will take you up to the house, said Colonel Hungerford. You must excuse me, sir, for I have to attend to the affair of the vessel, I answered. Must I argue this same question with you, too? demanded the governor. I hope you will not, for I think it will do no good, I added, laughing. Your Excellency forgets that I am the captain of the Sylvania, and a true sailor never gives up his ship. Your ship is all well enough. You must go to my house and bring Mr. Washburn with you. Impossible, sir. Our steamer is not a river boat, and she is not a flat-bottomed craft, I tried to explain. Her keel does not take kindly to the levee. I must stay here and look out for her, but I will call at your house this evening. But it was no use to argue the point. The governor persisted, and I finally compromised with him by agreeing that either Washburn or myself should be at his house all the time we remained in the place. In other words, we were to have watch and watch in visiting him. I took my first turn. Nothing could be more delightful than the home of the governor, and I think I never saw so many beautiful residences in a city of the size of the capital. 
I had put on my best uniform and prepared to make a creditable appearance in the place. Our party were presented to all the principal people of the city, who called to see the governor and congratulated him on the escape of himself and his family from the inundation, news of which had come by the steamer. I tried to keep in a corner and talk with Miss Margie and Miss Blanche, but I was dragged out twenty times to be exhibited as the captain who ran his vessel through the crevasse and over the cane fields of the plantations. We had a very large party at tea, and in spite of the embarrassments of my position, I enjoyed the occasion very much. Before we left the table, the governor received a dispatch informing him that the two fugitives had been captured on board of the Queen of the South and committed to the calaboose, or lockup. Again, I felt really sorry for poor Nick Boomsby and almost wished he had escaped though I could not justify myself in permitting him to do so. On Sunday we all went to church, leaving the Sylvania in charge of a crew from the Islander, and the whole ship's company, including the pilot, dined with the governor. The next morning I was astonished to hear that Cornwood and Nick had arrived, having been brought down in charge of an officer in the night, and were in prison. Late on Saturday night, I had sent by telegraph to Florida a condensed account of the arrest of the robber and his accomplice after the fact, and the information that the money had been recovered. A reply soon came that proper officers with a requisition for the culprits would be sent at once for them. In the meantime, the prisoners were brought before the court and the evidence against them was heard. Cornwood was his own counsel as well as Nick's. The testimony was considered strong enough to hold the fugitives for the requisition. They were sent to the lockup again, and our party resumed their merrymaking. We rode all about the country. We went to dinner parties, and we reciprocated the hospitalities extended to us by taking the governor and his friends on several excursions in the two steamers. Mrs. Shepherd improved wonderfully as soon as she realized that the earth beneath her was solid and there was no danger of the unruly waters drowning her while she slept. It was an exceedingly jolly time we had from morning till night and sometimes half the latter. After we had been at the capital of the state three days, I thought it was about time to move up the river again, but the Florida officials had not yet appeared. It was not till the following Saturday that they arrived. They had been detained in procuring the requisition by the absence of the governor, and in collecting what evidence they could obtain. With the officers came Peveril, the bank messenger from whom the money had been stolen. Another hearing before the court was necessary. The package containing the $4,000 was produced and identified by Peveril. He testified as to the manner in which the package had disappeared from the counter of the saloon. He brought the affidavits of two men who had seen Nick go off to the islander just before she sailed with a bundle in his hand. Captain Blasblow and I testified that the money had been found in equal parts on the prisoners. The plan of Cornwood to get possession of the whole or half of the money was shown from the manner in which he had conducted himself, 
in causing the departure of the islander from Key West before the arrival of the Sylvania, though the latter was in sight when the former left. Cornwood attempted to disprove the charges by repeating the silly story he had told me. He cross-questioned the witnesses and did his best to browbeat Peveril. The messenger showed that it was impossible that any money could have been obtained from the bank while Cornwood was in Jacksonville between the time the Floridian arrived and departed, but the court was satisfied with the evidence and the governor complied with the requisition. Before I left the courtroom, I went to Nick to say how sorry I was for him, sorry that he had done anything to reduce himself to such a situation. I don't know what made me do it, blubbered Nick, to the great disgust of his fellow criminal. I didn't think of doing it until the minute I did it. I had been thinking, as I told you at the time, of clearing out, and the sight of the package of money seemed to show me how it could be done. "'What are you talking about, you ninny?' growled Cornwood. "'You are convicting yourself.' "'I don't care anything about that. I won't lie any more about it, for it ain't no use,' replied Nick sourly. "'If it hadn't been for you, I should have got off all right, Cornwood.' I concluded that his penitence was not very deep. He told me how Cornwood had come on board of the Islander and accused him of taking the package, and he had been compelled to give him half of it to prevent him from exposing him. But all he said was no more than we had reasoned out before, and the confession seemed to be hardly original. "'You can do something for me, Captain Alec,' he continued." If you will get me out of this scrape, I will never do anything wrong again as long as I live. I can do nothing for you, I replied as gently as I could. They say you are thick with the governor, Alec. If you say the word, he will let me off, pleaded the culprit. You are in the hands of the law now, and nothing but the law can settle your case, Nick. Goodbye. I had hardly uttered the last words before I felt a heavy hand laid upon my throat, which was followed by a choking sensation. "'What are you about, Sandy Dundleton?' demanded my ancient enemy. "'What have you been saying again, my boy? He's a hundred times as honest as you ever was.' I thought I should be choked to death, and the instinct of self-preservation took possession of me. I sprang at the throat of my old tyrant. He went down upon the floor and I on top of him before my father or any other person could come to my aid. As he went down, he released his grasp on my throat in his effort to save himself. "'Arrest that person!' cried the justice in the sternest of tones. In another instance, two officers had Captain Boomsby in their clutches. A complaint was made against him for a breach of the peace. The justice made short work of him. He was sentenced to pay a fine of one hundred dollars and to stand committed until paid. It was more money than he had, and he was sent to jail. As usual, he was more than half seas over, as he used to call intoxication when I sail with him in the Great West. It appeared that he had followed the officers, but had some difficulty in finding his boy. 
In the afternoon, the Florida party took a boat down to New Orleans, intending to return home by the steamer to Cedar Keys. I afterwards learned that both Nick and Cornwood were convicted and sentenced to the penitentiary for three years. Though Cornwood was only an accomplice after the fact, he was the greater villain of the two. I never saw either of them again. We spent another Sunday in Baton Rouge, and delightful as our sojourn had been, even Mrs. Shepherd thought it was about time to part. But I could not leave with my ancient enemy unforgiven. I went to the clerk of the court and paid Captain Boomsby's fine. He was released from confinement and took the next boat down the river. He had the grace to take my hand and say goodbye before he went, and that was the last time I ever saw him. We had a large crowd on the levee when we left, and we kept our whistles going till a bend in the river took us out of sight of the hospitable city where we had enjoyed so much. The water had fallen a little, but not much. The melting snows of the northern hills had not yet sent down their full tribute to the gulf. We stopped at Natchez and at Vicksburg, and were very handsomely treated by the people. But the broad river was the greatest study to us, for we had visited no end of towns and cities on our long voyage. We were interested in the numerous islands, hundreds of them. When we looked at some of them from below, the fresh foliage seemed to form a regular flight of steps. The pilot explained this appearance. The rapid current was continually wearing away from the upstream end of the island and depositing its soil on the other end, in which every year new trees sprang up, and each step denoted the period in the growth of the wood. It was the first day of May when we reached Cairo, at the mouth of the Ohio, where the waters of the two rivers seemed to be spread out like an inland sea or lake. We found an excellent hotel there, but Washburn and I spent what time we had to spare with our friend West, who had been for a time a student in Somerset College. A couple of days more brought us to St. Louis, where we found enough to interest us for a week. When we were about ready to continue our voyage, Colonel Shepard came into the pilot house where I was seated with Washburn and wanted to know how much farther up the river I intended to go. He had heard me speak of sailing the next morning and he thought it was about time for him to leave for New York by train with his family. End of chapter